So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Warren. Um, I'm part of the, the Beacon Bay congregation, although I must say every time I'm here I just feel like I'm coming home. It's so wonderful to be with you all this morning. Uh, before I start, I just wanted to, to give a little shout out to somebody in, the, in attendance today. I've been working with an amazing young man from Austria for the last few weeks, Wolfgang Schwartz, and uh, he's here this morning. So lovely to see you, Wolfgang, with his family from Austria. So it's brilliant to have you here. <laughs> So nice, so uh, Wolfgang's finished his time working with me now, and we end off in church, and his family's going to have holiday in South Africa, and they're starting off in church, so I think it's perfect. All right. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the amazing gift of your word. Thank you that your word is alive. Thank you that through it we are able to get to know you. I pray that today as we work through this text, we'll uh, be challenged by it and be ready to receive the message, and that through it all, you will be glorified. So let's start by looking at the setting of Luke 14, which we're going through today. By this time, Jesus' ministry was already quite established, and he had traveled from place to place teaching, and he had built up quite a large following. And Luke 14 starts on a Sabbath day, as Sia told us last week, with Jesus having a meal at the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, who, as we know, were the Jewish religious leaders of the time. And as we read through the chapter, we see how Jesus' various interactions with the Pharisees challenges them in different ways. And before approaching our text for today, I think that it's important that we recap those interactions. So, at this initial dinner, Jesus heals a man in front of the Pharisees. And obviously, he would have healed many people before this, and the Pharisees would have been well aware that Jesus had healed people. But this meal took place on the Sabbath day. And through this interaction, Jesus challenged the Pharisees about their strict religiosity because it would technically have been contravening the law to heal on the Sabbath. In verse 5, Jesus asks them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And the Pharisees were unable to answer. Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the wedding feast. At the time in the Jewish culture, seating at formal or important occasions was determined by social status. And through this parable, Jesus challenges the sense of superiority that the Pharisees have. And in verse 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Next, Jesus goes on to challenge the Pharisees about the social status quo with the parable of the great banquet. He teaches them that it is better to invite those who cannot repay you for your generosity and your kindness to a banquet rather than inviting those with the hope of the gesture being returned. Jesus suggests to them that they invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind to the banquet. In a culture where the ill and the downcast in society were seen as unclean, this would probably have revolted the Pharisees. But Jesus is trying to make them see that their repayment will not be in this life. He tells them you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Jesus continues on that theme of the banquet and challenges their priorities by telling the Pharisees about a man who prepares a great feast and invites many honored guests. But when the time of the banquet comes, one by one the guests start giving excuses about why they can't attend. The man then goes on to invite society's outcasts and even people from outlying areas to attend the feast so that his house will be full. In this parable, Jesus is challenging the priorities of the Pharisees 
but he is also issuing them a harsh warning, as Sia told us last week. In verse 24 we read, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquets. If the banquet is eternity with our Father, and we choose to prioritize other things, we may never taste the feast. We often say in church circles that the calling of a modern-day Christ follower is to live a life that seems countercultural, a life that isn't ruled by competition and jealousy and keeping up with the Joneses as our capitalist society dictates, but rather a life of kindness and generosity, a life of loving our neighbor. But looking at these verses that we've looked at at the beginning of Luke 14, we can see that Jesus' message and his teachings were radical even in his own time. That's why he was hated by the Pharisees and the, relig the religious zealots of the day and why they feared him so much. It was probably also one of the reasons that he was so popular. He was making the feast or the great banquet accessible to the common man and even the social outcasts. Jesus had challenged the Pharisees on their religiosity, which was the very basis of their identity. He had challenged them on their status in society and their concept of social hierarchy as well as challenging their priorities. The passage today is going to challenge our priorities, or at least it certainly did mine. In our passage for today, Jesus is no longer at this meal with the Pharisees, but now he's teaching a large crowd of people who are following. Let's read together from Luke 14, verse 25. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet um, one who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Today is my third time preaching, ever, in my whole life. So when Anna sent me the message that this was my scripture to preach on, my first instinct was just to check the message again. Surely it couldn't be this verse. Could this be the right passage? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, himself, to say I was caught off guard is a bit of an understatement. But I reread the message and reread the message, and it was quite clear that this was my passage. I've done some biblical theology study in my life, so my next reaction was, okay, I know what's going on here. Um, this English translation must just have used the wrong word. Surely Jesus didn't say this. Luke would have written in Greek, so I researched the Greek word which he used in the passage and found out that it was misio, which, to my dismay, can be translated as something equivalent to our modern-day meaning of the word hate, to detest or to loathe. Thank you, Honor, in your absence. Our church has recently gone through a series in our life groups or small groups called What's So Amazing About Scripture? 
And that series taught us, amongst other things, that context is very important. Knowledge of the culture and knowledge of the time is very important. Jesus would have been addressing the crowd in Aramaic, and a common literary tool of the time was hyperbole or exaggeration. For example, in Aramaic, there's no word for like, as in I like something, but only a word for love. And in the context of the time, hate used in this passage would probably more appropriately be translated to love less in our way of speaking. But it still seems so contradictory to what we read elsewhere in Scripture. We read in Matthew 19, Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 5, Jesus even tells us to love our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love for one another is a core characteristic of a Christ follower. In John 13, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So how do we make sense of today's passage? In this context, I think that Jesus' use of the word hate probably has two meanings. Firstly, he means that in serving him, we may be called upon to do things that might appear to the world to be hateful to ourselves or hateful to our families. This might be denying ourselves certain pleasures, maybe choosing to give money to charity instead of uh, saving up for a family holiday. In John 12, verse 25, Jesus uses the term hate again. He says, whoever, loses his, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I also think that Jesus was highlighting by using this exaggeration that our love for God should far exceed our love for our relatives and our love even for ourselves. After all, Jesus instructed us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Working through the text, I was able to breathe a sigh of relief. By changing hate to love less, the whole verse became a little bit more comfortable, although still very challenging. Whoever does not love their father, their mother, their spouse, their children less than they love my father cannot be my disciple. But something was still bugging me. You see, Jesus used that term and that exaggerated style of speech for a reason, a very important reason. And that reason is to wake us up to the reality of what it is to be his follower. There are certain verses in Scripture that make us so uncomfortable that we tend to just skip over them. There are certain truths that are just easier to avoid. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a famous celebrity or sports person with Luke 14 verse 25 tattooed on them. There's a real danger in softening Scripture to suit our modern sensibilities in changing the meaning of the Scripture to make the message more manageable in our lives. Christ's message was radical. It shook the beliefs and the ideas of the Pharisees. It would have shaken the beliefs of the people in the great crowd that day, and it remains radical to this day. It should shake our beliefs. It should challenge our priorities. We should be uncomfortable when we read passages like this. We need Scripture to challenge how we are living and how we are loving. As we look at this passage, we see how Jesus challenges the people, and by extension us, on where we place God in our lives, compared to our earthly relationships and compared to our possessions. And he reminds us that carrying our cross, which means enduring suffering and being vulnerable, are part of the journey 
of a Christ follower. I can imagine that there were people in that great crowd that day when Jesus was addressing them who were just there for the fanfare of following the new prophet of the day. There were probably people who were looking to escape from the weight of the Jewish law, who were excited by the prospect of this new way of living, not bound by the strict religiosity. And I'm sure there were also people who had witnessed Jesus performing miracles and heard this teaching and may actually have believed that he was the Messiah. Jesus gave the same message to them all. This walk of faith is not easy. It will require suffering, personal suffering and relational suffering. Jesus didn't disguise the cost of discipleship to win over hearts or to gain more followers. By downplaying the nature of the love that he's calling us to, the love that we should have for God today, by softening the scripture and saying love less, we are at risk of doing just that. We are at risk of disguising the cost of discipleship. So from my issue with this word hate, we find ourselves now at a concept of love. How can we possibly love God the way that Jesus demands? How can we love God more than we love our parents? How can we love God more than we love our spouse? How can we love God more than we love our children? And not our children when they're being naughty, when they're being at their best. I was so challenged by this. It can seem very difficult to love God more than your family because your family is often close by and God can feel far away. There are many psychological studies into love and what most conclude is that love comprises at least three different components, mental, emotional, and behavioral. And all of these components develop as we get to know someone. And just as relational love um, develops amongst people, the same can be said about loving God. So to love God as He deserves and as He demands from us, we need to know Him better. And as we get to know Him better, our trust in Him will grow. And as our trust grows, the intimacy of our relationship with Him will grow as well. A.W. Tozer is an American theologian who wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. And this book has had a tremendous impact on my faith. And one of the opening lines is this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the most portentous, which means significant, I also had to look that up, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. As humans, we learn by using what we know as a bridge to the unknown. For example, mythological creatures are generally a combination of two creatures that already exist. A mermaid is a human and a fish, or a human and a dolphin. You get my point. But they're not completely new creatures. And because of this tendency to work from the known to the unknown, we often apply that to our idea of what God is like. We put characteristics of created things onto the Creator. And our thoughts will always fall short of his true glory. There's an amazing description from Ezekiel when he saw visions of God, and I think it's a great example of this. And above the, above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. 
and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I love that line. You can actually feel how Ezekiel was battling to try and express the majesty which he had witnessed. As created beings, we will never be able to truly comprehend our Creator God fully and know Him as He knows Himself. Left to ourselves, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. And God is just too big and too great for us to really grasp. You might be thinking, what is this guy on about? If I can't know God, what's the point? But what I'm trying to get across is that we shouldn't assume to know God better than He in His infinite wisdom, allows us to know Him. What we can get to know, though, are the attributes that He, in His love for us, has disclosed about Himself. And getting to know Him as we are capable of leads to a very full and satisfying love for Him. So how do we go about knowing these attributes? Firstly, through Scripture, through reading the Old and the New Testament. Secondly, through what is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. We read in Corinthians, So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us. And thirdly, we get to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. A.W. Tozer says it like this, In Christ and by Christ, God effects complete self-disclosure, although He shows Himself not to reason, but to faith and love. Faith is an organ of knowledge, and love is an organ of experience. God came to us through the incarnation. In atonement, He reconciled us to Himself, and by faith and love we enter and lay hold of Him. It is through Jesus that we enter into relationship with our Father God, through the work of the cross. And as our knowledge of God grows, our faith in Him grows. And as our experience of Him grows, we love Him more and more. What God reveals us to us through Scripture through the Spirit, and through Jesus Christ. Unchanging. He is all-knowing and wise. He is all-powerful and omnipresent. He is faithful, good, just, merciful. He is loving. He is holy and sovereign. And as we get to know Him and trust Him, we start to love Him with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our mind, just as Jesus commanded. We want to obey Him perfectly and worship Him as His majesty deserves. Getting to know this kind of Father changes the filter on the radical message of sacrificial love that Jesus told the crowd that day. A love potentially at the cost of our relationships and possessions. A love that endures suffering goes from being incomprehensible to us to seeming almost natural. So we've gone from hate to love and from incomprehensible to natural. 
And that is the power of the gospel. If you're sitting here today and you're seeking God, but you have not yet committed your life to Him, or if you came with a friend and you actually don't believe any of this, I want to assure you of something. This immense God that I'm speaking of, the creator of the universe, wants a relationship with you. Why, you may ask. Why would he want me? I'm a mess. Why would he want a relationship with me? I don't even believe in him. The answer is he loves you. And that's something we can't fully explain, but he loves us. So how do we get there? How do we get to a place where the radical love that Jesus spoke about to the crowd that day becomes natural to us? First, we have to realize that if it weren't for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, a relationship like that with our Father, the one that we have access to now, would not have been possible. And this access has nothing to do with our works, but is a gift of grace. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are also a few practical things that we can do. We can develop a relationship with God through regular prayer. We can ask the Holy Spirit for help and guidance in knowing God and developing that relationship. We can spend time reading Scripture, learning about and meditating on God's attributes. We have to commit our whole life to Christ, not to be one person on Sunday and then somebody else the rest of the week. We must commit to carrying our cross and loving our fellow man in all of our interactions day to day. And as our knowledge of God and our relationship with God grows, naturally an outpouring of that love will take place to those around us. And then importantly, we have to actively battle sin in our lives. Jesus said, blessed be the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Tolerating sin in our lives will always be a stumbling block to developing our relationship with God. Because ultimately, we are sinning against God. If we are soft on sin in our lives, we are giving sin a higher priority than we are giving to God. And if something is higher priority than the Most High, then He simply isn't the Most High in our hearts or in our lives. And that is always going to sabotage our relationship with Him. When we start to realize that this incredible God willingly sacrificed His Son in order to restore our relationship with Him, it's actually staggering. This Father, who's so much greater than we can even comprehend, loves us that much. The cost of discipleship that we looked at in our passage may seem radical, but the mercy that He shows us is more radical. The grace that He shows us is more radical. His love for us is more radical. We're going to share together in communion now. And uh, while we take the communion together, I ask that you just meditate on what an amazing and good Father we have, and also on the, the incredible sacrifice that His Son, Jesus Christ, paid for us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we are so overwhelmed by what an incredible Father you are. 
We are overwhelmed by the fact that a God who is incomprehensible to us as created beings can still love us so much that you want a relationship with us. We are overwhelmed by the fact that you sent your only son to live amongst us and then to suffer on the cross in order to, to regain access to you, Lord, to be reconciled with you. As we've taken this communion, we pray that that message will be in our hearts, Lord. As we go forth from this building today, we pray that we'll remember, we'll remember what a father you are, what a father we have to serve, what a father we have to be part of a family with, and the amazing son, the amazing son that brought us into your presence. Amen.